Welcome back to the Decaf Recap. I'm your host, Lucas Velastos. Here we recap movies after their hype has passed, do a little bit of deep dive on what it represents, what it could mean, and go about it. Today, I have two great guests, my friend Trey and his friend Aiden. We are here to talk about a good movie, an interesting movie, a pulpy movie. I'm talking about Pulp Fiction, directed by Tarantino. Trey, what do you think of Pulp Fiction? Well, first thing I want to say about Pulp Fiction is that I was really fucking confused by that film when I first saw it, and I fell asleep a lot, and I didn't really even know how to fully feel <laughs> And then I watched it again because I'm like, there's a, I have I have this like loyalty to like wanting to understand classics even if I don't like them at first. I'm like, I want to understand this so I can feel like I'm part of. I want to feel part of the team. <laughs> I want to be part of this Pulp Fiction and things just knowing references like there's so many references that like I've like had told to me for years. I never knew what they meant. And, like, it's, like, 10 years later, like, I'm full-grown adult, and, like, now I'm, like, realizing this shit, and I'm, like, damn, I could have, like, had so much more fun with people. But, like, yeah, it's just, um, the movie, I, I love the movie. Like, it's it's just one of those movies where I feel like it really just captures what, like, real-life situations, especially glamorizing, like, the ones that are, like, you know, not so good, like just the whole gangster concept. It like de-romanticizes it, and that's why I think I love about most movies because like you, you kind of have content fed to you every day in a romanticized way, and then you realize like the movies that like get the most like recognitions are the ones like that don't really catch your attention at first because like in reality you're so disrelated to the concept of like reality because like you're trying to always escape it. But then you just get an actual taste of it, and like that's why I feel like Tarantino films are like. I mean, they're still like, of course, like you know, dramatized in a way that's like specific, but it's like it is more about like definitely the dialogue and like things that they like people. Not even just the action in it, just like the actual dialogue. I feel like King of Dialogue is all about the dialogue. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's, just, it's perfect about the. He just has good dialogue talked in his like movies, and is more about what they're saying. That's like why I feel like what people like in movies, especially like a Tarantino film, is that you can quote things. Like people love movies that can be quoted. I mean, like just look at the fucking um like uh the Samuel Jackson's scene where he's he's talking about um or what is it? Is oh, character the jewels? Because um, like that that scene has been meme. That scene has been like just taken all about. Like people just like shown it a bunch of times. They've because it's it, it's. It's an awkward scene, but it's also kind of funny. Like, it's, yeah. it's terrifying. Like, if you're in that situation, like, oh, shit. But by watching, you're just like, god damn. This, like, it's, it's kind of sad, but it's really kind of funny in a, in a dark, twister way. Exactly. And, and that's what Tarantino does. Like, Pulp Fiction definitely has too many moments that are over the top for it not to be funny. Uh, Aiden, Aiden what do you think? I think there's better Tarantino films out there. Um, I think Pulp Fiction is kind of overhyped. Overhyped? Maybe I just don't understand it, you know? It's, well, it's like, what, the second or third Tarantino film that he made? And, and it's... Uh, it got nominated for the for the Academy Award that year. I don't think it won. I just know that... I think it got nominated because the Academy talks about Tarantino in the same way they talk about... Pulp Fiction is like an, an icon, but uh, I can see that because it's to degree to a degree it's dated. Like when I watch it, um, the the gunshots, right? If you really watch the film, there's no flare or there's nothing that we would see as a gunshot. Like you just hear the sound, right? And there's like no blood or like very little blood, at least in the beginning. I can't believe I'm saying the beginning for a film that is in non-chronological order. The scene where Taron or uh, uh, Jules, played by Samuel Jackson, is shooting a bunch of people and trying to get the the, the briefcase back. There's no blood, or there's like they don't show uh, any blood. So that's kind of corny to me, and that might have just been because of the times, because it was filmed back in like the '80s. No, I think like aesthetically, it's super pretty. Like, it looks really cool. I don't know if pretty is the right word, but enticing. Enticing, yeah, I guess. It's just, like, it goes so slow, and, like, you 
you said you fell asleep the first time you watched it. Yeah. After the first yeah. time I watched it, I was like, well, I could have taken a nap. And, uh, <laughs> that's <laughs> just as fulfilling. That is fair. It's, 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 it's what is it, like three hours? And that's, um, I think there's a director's cut. It's it's a slow film. Um, it's weird how the Academy is kind of obsessed with slow films. Like there's what is here's the thing. Hmm. Like also as someone who loves like watching shows and like media and TV like as much as I did as a child, I I really fucking loved animes too. But like also I realized there is a lot of animes that I really liked that were also really slow. So like it took me a while to get into them, even though I knew I liked it. But it's just like. I think you just need a certain mindset and patience for, like, you know, I things. I do think Tarantino films and uh, a, a certain, like, you know, long films in general that are, like, universally beloved or just considered good films, uh, either by the Academy or, like, just by people, do seem to ha- at least have a rewatchability. Like, uh, Reservoir Dogs, uh, to me, was kind of, like, very slow-paced. And even though, like, you have these interesting characters, for the most part, it's just, like, people talking in one location. And we never actually got to see the heist, which was kind of a downer for me. Like, I was, like, expecting to see a lot of shoot 'em up uh, At the same time, the film denying me that wasn't a bad thing because it gave it, like, a new type of, I don't know, feel for, for criminal movies. But uh, it, it, it was slow-paced, and I think that was Tarantino working with, like, what he had, like, the limitations of what he had. A little bit of that, I think, carried over in Pulp Fiction, where you know he's he's still showing violence, he's still showing things, but it's um, what he can do with what he has. So he's like, okay, I got good actors. I'm gonna rely on dialogue. I'm gonna rely on just showing people an intense scene rather than trying to uh, compensate with explosions. And so I'll, I'll give him props for that, for like trying to figure things out. But that, as a result, it does make it slow. But would you say it's rewatchable? Is it a film you can rewatch and enjoy like segments, or is it just like something that? If it doesn't catch your attention, do you just want it to like, to like move on to something else? I mean, I want to, I want to revisit it just because you know people talk so highly about it. I mean, we're sitting down in front of microphones right now talking about it. So. <laughs> this is true. This is us. <laughs> How long ago did this movie come out? Like ninety, eighty-nine, Over thirty years, I want to say, because it was. Nah, dude, it wasn't the eighty. Mid nineties? Oh my god! I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. Before any of us were alive. That's true. Something like that. But like, I don't know. If that says something. Before any of us are alive, we're talking about a movie. I've never done a podcast before, and like my first one is like doing. Actually, no, it's a lie. I did a podcast. Before, but <laughs> my second podcast, I'm talking about like a very classic movie that's probably been done a lot of times. So that says something. It's definitely been talked about, rewatched. Like, it, it definitely. Ha- I think it has arguably a rewatchability, at least for most people. Like, not for everyone. Tarantino is not for everyone, but he has something here. Um, what's something you want to see more from it, though, Aiden? Like, if if there if it's lacking in some department, is it just the fact that it's long, or is it the fact that it doesn't um, doesn't grab your attention like right away? Yeah, I think that's the biggest issue. Um, it just like didn't do much for me. I thought it was, I don't know how to explain it. It's been so long since I've seen it, too, so. We just watched it, like, yesterday, so that's, like, that's why we're doing this. We're like, yeah, yeah. It's, it's fresh to us. Like, Sorry to put you in the hot seat. <laughs> Trey, what'd you, what'd you? Oh, I just want to, like, just recap. Aiden literally, like, came at the right, like, just, he wanted to hang out with me today, and then, like, Lucas, we were planning this, so, like, it just kind of all came together. He just was like, oh, cool, Aiden. Let's t- you want to talk about a movie you don't like? <laughs> That's pretty much what this is. I, I think it's perfect. I think it's perfect because it's good to have another opinion in there and to really, like, you know, battle it out, duke it out, figure out, like, okay, if but, this movie's good, why? And I can also agree with Aiden. I, I understand why you don't like it, especially if you've only seen it one time and a half because it's just, like, I think, and I feel like also just the fact that it is something that was made before we were born and also has become like you know a staple in like our society of like you know media and like how we like go about life because like if you think about it like Pulp Fiction is like you know it's it's pretty much a meme to a degree not fully but like it's a meme in a sense where like it stick it sticks around 
so much and like it seems around so much and talked about so much it's like the mona lisa like even the mona lisa is like one of the first original memes so i feel like <laughs> this particular movie just like yes it's something that can outstand the lengths of time because the conceptualness and it's like content and even the way that it's like directed and like you know shot it it, it, it plays on like i think certain subconscious like you know interpersonal and also even existential, like, you know, understand, uh, understandings of how, like, we go about life. But, and it also makes you realize how disconnected with, like, those concepts of reality that you are. Because, like, the, uh, some of the notes and some of the things that me and Lucas were even talking about yesterday while we were watching the film was the fact that, like, it, like, de-romanticizes things. And if you think about it, like, a lot of of the best things in like history or stuff that like deconstruct stuff in general. I mean, even look at the Beatles and like definitely fucking album cover for like Sergeant Pepper's like definitely that's why people talk about history and like classic things over and over because it's always going to like because here's the thing when you have uh what would you even call it like instead of like a staple what's a better word to like call like just very recommend like hmm. like. Even classic, I feel like, is not the right word for what I'm trying to, like, say. It's not classic. I mean, it does take from, like, you know, certain classic elements or tropes. Like, Tarantino's work is riddled with things that he enjoys, things that are, like, he, he, you know, you see in maybe iconic films. And then he takes those tropes, but instead like, of just... Probably iconic is yeah. probably the right word for... The iconic, word. I think, yeah. I do feel like there is another word, but, like, maybe it's just, like, iconic. Like, just when it comes to, like, the concept of icons and like what, what what we want to like recognize or like set the standard for like i feel like the iconic things in life are the things that bring us back down to like reality when like you know because if you think about it like we're as humans we conceptualize and this is where i feel like you know this move why like it's not really i don't really feel like discussing the movie directly but just more of like the concepts and like how it makes us feel in different time periods of like you know human existence where we still have these things from the past. We're still able to access them, especially through the internet, and like reconstruct them through the fact that, like, the fact that, like, now in 2018, we can just like make memes out of like old movies and like bring a new light to them. So like, it's like the movie is like always gonna be that movie, but it's also ever for <laughs> forever changing. Well, I, it's interesting you bring up meme. It's interesting you bring up a meme because. You know, Pulp Fiction has been memed, and that's not out of the question. It's just that how it's memeable or how it's been memed. Because to me, nothing gets memed unless, for some reason, better or worse, it's popular. And, like, one, Samuel Jackson and his whole acting career has been memed in one fashion or another. But Pulp Fiction is a film that people have, like, come back to once they realized it, once they, like... And, and it's always had, like, a popularity, but even nowadays, like, it resonates with people. And that's kind of interesting. Like, it grasps uh, that young generation... Speaking of memes, have you seen the one where it's um, Samuel Jackson? He's got the guy in the chair, and they keep replacing his lines with famous Dex ad libs. <laughs> no, no. What <laughs> like, is this? They're like, say what one more time. It's what? Like, yeah, it's like famous Dex. Oh, it's so good, so funny. It's that's the best part of Pulp Fiction to me is the memes. It is. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> it, it, it's definitely like the cornerstone for this generation where like just Tarantino's work can be thrown in that category, especially the Samuel Jackson scene where they do that. I know they did that with like a Siri where it just, it looks like Samuel Jackson is holding Siri, right? Or, or an iPhone listening to Siri. And then you just hear him go, what does Marcellus Walls look like? And it's just Siri trying to deduce and deduct that. It's just, it's stupid, but it's just the fact that someone spent their time to edit that. Oh. Like, there, there, there's something to be said about just, like, yeah, w why people are spending so much time memeing Pulp Fiction. I wish I had the time to do that. I feel like now, does seem fun. I feel like now, Adrian, that you'll probably, like, enjoy it more because how much, like, you, need, you needed some memes to help you relate to it. Now watch it again and you'll be like, oh, yeah, this is where that meme actually was. Uh, now this is even fun. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I also did watch it before film school, too, so... I didn't really have like as much context going into it um like the whole thing about like these trucks from other films and i probably didn't understand that at that point and i don't have an issue with like slow movies at all i just i don't know man it just didn't do anything for me but now that i can think about famous decks while i watch it <laughs> maybe that'll explain it well like 
it is it is strange. Like most of the references, and there's a lot of references. Like not even it says sometimes just like visually told. Um, uh, in in Tarantino's work, like I don't get most of those. Like most of the references, for example, in Reservoir Dogs, like are dated just because like they were contemporary for the time. Um, but then like he'll make a reference where like the the, the standoff right has just like three people shoot each other. That's from a different film that Tarantino just really likes. It's very obscure. And I guarantee you Pulp Fiction is just riddled with certain obscurities. Like one thing, at the very least, I don't think it's like a direct reference, but it feels kind of cartoonish. Like they open the suitcase or the briefcase, right? And there is a light emanating up. And that, you know, kind of reflects certain uh, cartoons where like, you know, they would open the bag or something like that. And they have this shining light. Um, just to represent like something good or like, ooh, gold or treasure, something that, and people on the internet who are fucking crazy have actually debated what's in the briefcase to the point where Tarantino just comes out and says, it's just a light guys. And we are back. Uh, we had to take a little bit of a break. Uh, not that anything was like crashing or if there was any loud noise or anything like that. It's a situation where, uh, we needed, uh, to relocate. And whatnot, we have some uh, some party crashers around, but that's besides the point. We're still talking about Pulp Fiction, and let's just pick up where we left off. Um, we were getting kind of close, if I recall correctly. Just the idea that uh, Pulp Fiction is about certain aspects of like what we see as enticing, you know, like criminal behavior or you know the underground mindset. It takes like certain tropes from that, and it slowly diminish or not diminishes them but uh, uh deconstructs them like in the circumstance of uh the two hitmen vincent and jules like they first start out as just kind of the i, I wouldn't say stereotypical but like a trope of stone cold killers right they're they're well dressed they have their uh they have their guns they go in they they shoot up people they get their money like that's their whole they're just like hitmen in a sense in the in the iconic sense but then uh Throughout the whole film, it's just them dealing with a sense of realism of like, oh, if you shoot someone, you have to dispose of the body. You have to, you know, clean your clothes. You have to like do all this tedious stuff. It's like, what, 30 minutes of the film is just donated to that? Yeah, and like that's the part like that you don't see like in most like pop, like move, well, mainstream movies or just popular movies that like go with tropes that are just so like traditional and like, you know, it satisfy your needs of like this romanticized like action film where you usually would see like you know these types of characters like as Vincent and Jules just like literally you know shooting people up but like no most of the time they're just talking it's not like because it's like not a continual like you know montage of like action action shoot shoot fuck fuck this stuff like it's not it's not that like it, it's parts of that and, like, they definitely do in parts of, like, you know, regular mainstream movies, but, like, it's not the main thing. It's more about getting to that intense part. But, like, usually in mainstream movies, the intense parts always have, like, sound. In reality, that's not how it is. Like, you are going to have silence because, like, you're going to, like, it's like, a, it's mainly your senses. It, I feel like what Pulp Fiction does, it brings out the senses in you of, like, if you were in this situation, this is how you would feel. Like, it would be silent because, like, you don't know if, like, you're going to die or not. I mean, for example, like in the aspect of in the scene where um, Butch, played by Bruce Willis, like literally has the gun pointed at Vincent as he's coming out of the bathroom. Not for him, not even ex- like if anything, that's like one of the most intense like scenes I feel like I've like besides the gimp scene, but like we'll get to that later. But like just uh, like the, the gimp, <laughs> like um, that Vincent like realized his life was about to be ended because like. The gun was straight, was right straight at him. Like he knew what was gonna happen, and then she's dead. And like that was a, that was a pretty legitimate like action scene. But like that was actually like a moment where you kind of felt for Vincent. Like even though he was there to kill Butch himself, like it kind of just flipped around. And then at that point, it's not more about the action. It's just more about like the moralistic aspect of like whoa. What, what did that mean? Because, like, even Vincent was trying to, like, probably vaguely turn around his life after um, Jules, like, said he was done well, like, reading that book, which was, like, a, definitely a symbol. Like, I feel like that's another thing we didn't mm-hmm. discuss, like, prior to this podcast. Like, there's a lot of symbolism in this movie. A lot. And the symbolism sometimes is kind of, like, very blatant, but other times it's a little bit, I, I don't know, um like harder to grasp like one thing and i might just be uh 
looking into it way too much, but like when Vincent gets his heroin from uh, his, his friend right before he goes hang out with uh, Mia, played by Uma Thurman, in that scene, there's something interesting. One, his, his dealer, his drug dealer, kind of looks like Jesus. He's got a exactly. robe. Exactly, like I always He's got that too. And he talks about a, uh, the death of cocaine and how heroin is making a comeback. So you have a dude looking like Jesus talking about a resurrection right before Mia, or like foreshadowing, possibly foreshadowing Mia's uh, al- like almost death because she ODs on heroin and then is resurrected. Thinking that is cocaine. Thinking that's cocaine, right. And so the thing that, uh, the thing that is attributed to death cocaine by the uh, or by the drug dealer the drug dealer says oh cocaine's dying out she thinks it's cocaine or she thinks heroin is cocaine does it like cocaine ODs so she almost died because of in a sense uh, a co- cocaine then is resurrected but not in the fashion of like you know uh, an epiphany or realization no it's just an adrenaline shot and the the, the needle scene all of that like so cringy it's so cringy, but like they, you, you have this kind of like almost religious background of like a resurrection, albeit visually shown rather than shown like right out. It's just the idea that, okay, this drug dealer looks like Jesus and he's talking about resurrections. And then they show a resurrection, but it's not beautiful. It's gritty. I mean, the, the cinematography is great, but like when you're watching, you're like, no. You can't do that with a needle. Don't like, and how sloppy it is. He, like, what is it? He thinks he has to stab her three times. Like, yeah. like oh, oh this, man. And if, it's, imagine if he made that mistake, not thinking, like just like off the whim, like three times. Okay, I <laughs> I do not want to imagine. I do not. I just the fact that throughout the whole scene, when like they're showing the needle, I swear throughout the whole scene, the lighting in that room is perfect. Because you can see how long the needle is, like the, you know, they got a little bit of light glaring it's right a off long it. Long needle, I'm like, dude, you know, the, the very long your needle. Heart, like, you think that actually would just kill her? You, one would think, and I mean, again, Tarantino's films have a, a weird interest with uh, biology, and where it'll get very technical, like, okay, you gotta stab someone here, or cutting them here will kill them, and stuff like that. It'll get very technical at times, and then it'll throw all that technicality out the window just to do, like, a crazy blood splatter and things like that. Okay. Mainly in Kill Bill, but you see a little bit of that in Pulp Fiction. I'm, and also, to go back to, like, the whole Jesus, like, imagery of, like, the drug dealer, like, I know this probably wasn't as intentional, but just kind of growing up in, like, a religious, from a religious background, and, like, just understanding like the concept of what jesus did is like people always came to jesus to do miracles and like that's kind of how i saw vincent in that time of need like he literally was in a time of need where he needed some well first of all like it made sense because like for vincent to go to the drug dealer because like if someone if he's selling heroin it makes sense that like if someone ods off of heroin like his drug dealer has to have something to like you know help people like if they take too much because like First of all, heroin's a fucking serious drug. Like that's like oh yeah, it's like Russian roulette. That's like a Russian roulette drug. Like you can either just in, like you'll but get be- the high, or you literally just die if you do it wrong. But what's crazy about it is, um, at the beginning, you know, Vincent, he he, he totally buys into what is his uh, drug his drug dealer friend is telling him, right? And so if his drug dealer friend is a uh, small representation for like you know for Christianity or something of the sort or just religion. At first, he just like believes him unquestionably. This is good heroin. Okay, it's good heroin. Later though, he's questioning everything he does because he doesn't know how to resurrect a person in this situation from an, o- an overdose. So you could say there's there's not a whole lot of character change with Vincent. I think char- uh, as far as character development, Vincent's the most stubborn in all of Pulp Fiction, but. He's shown, kind, at the very least, kind of as a questioning, in a sense, a not authority, but like questioning, you know, someone who could be represented of a religious authority in a situation of just the guy looks like Jesus and he doesn't know what to do in this form of resurrecting people. Again, that's a little bit, uh, a little bit too wonky, I feel like, as a deep dive because it, it, it's almost there, but it's a situation where you have to just assume this guy represents Jesus and that that's what the heroin is all about. Uh, <laughs> I, I guess it's a segment of saying, don't do drugs, kids. <laughs> but, yeah, um, you, you know what we're talking about, right? Uh, right? Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about, we're talking about the, the Jesus drug we're dealer. We're talking about heroin Jesus. <laughs> heroin Jesus. Uh, and the, um, 
what is it? The other scene of, of, of gr- a little bit of gritty realism, right? But also crazy, just over the top gore is when Marv dies, right? Marv is shot in the back of the head accidentally. And it's just blood galore, right? It's just like splatters everywhere, the whole. And then the rest of that scene, they're like just cleaning up the whole, like the whole piece of it. So it goes from this over the top gore from just one uh, gunshot, which I guess could do that to someone, but they, it's in the film, it might as well have been a shotgun. And then it just goes to cleaning up that for like the next half hour. Yeah, that's actually uh, the whole cleanup section. That's one of the parts that like stood out to me. That's a part that I remember. I just thought that was really interesting. And like, from what I remember, it seemed like they were just ruining that guy's day. He's like, oh, I'm fucking <laughs> clean up after you assholes. And the Tarantino cameo, like he's just in his, his, his nightgown complaining that his, his uh, nurse wife will come home and see them getting rid of a dead body. <laughs> yeah. uh, and it's, it's a, it's a, I'd argue that's still a unique scene by nowadays standards because you don't see a whole lot of people disposing of bodies. I mean, you do in films, but not to the length that film goes where they're just explaining it all. In a very practical sense, like it's not crazy like what they do, but it's a situation where like, man... This is kind of exhausting. Like, that's how you get rid of a dead body? Mm. <laughs> you just see him hit the ground, and that's the end of the story. Right. Basically, like, they, <laughs> they, they take it to, um, to a car compactor. They take, like, they total the car, I think. And it's, uh, they're, oh, yeah, and, like, you know, again, they're, they're deconstructed where they were these clean-suited uh, men, but now they're covered in blood, so they have to remove that. And, like... <laughs> they're just where they they look like California uh, uh, beach dudes for the rest of the film. Mm. Very funny thing. Um, John Travolta's character Vincent is wearing uh, UC Santa Cruz banana slugs T-shirt, and I find that hilarious because my brother goes to UC Santa Cruz, <laughs> and so we're just staring at that and it's like, oh, that's my where my bro goes. It's so fucking weird. I'm surprised that that school doesn't market John Travolta as their mascot. Like, the banana slug is cool. They call him Sammy the Slug. But John Travolta wearing the banana slug, I feel like it's a little bit more uh, intimidating than the banana slug itself. And just to see, like, a, you know, mascot outf- outfit of, of John Travolta, that'd be terrifying. see Santa Cruz Travoltas. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. We got to patent this. We got to get some money from that school. <laughs> <laughs> probably already did. <laughs> probably already did get some money. I mean, think about it. It was a classic film. You got the you got the that college being represented like like I'm pretty sure they benefited a little bit off of that. You could probably do some research and see. If what. they didn't benefit financially, at the very least, uh they've they've like uh messed around with the, the school campus, like they probably messed with the teachers there. Just because there's, there's they they don't have that same shirt nowadays, but I guarantee you like someone has found those shirts. Or the, that like that year for the design, and like they must sell at such a high high uh, um, volume. If you do have them on, e- like just put them on eBay for like, I'd say maybe like a thousand bucks, because someone out there is like Pulp Fiction. Yes, I gotta buy that. That's that's so in there. But it's it's also I feel like it's a uh, I would say a very intentional choice because one they're in L.A. right. Uh, UC Santa Cruz is like uh, pretty up, uh, pretty far north, like closer to San Francisco, so it does bring you more into the world of like, okay, this is you know this is the West West Coast West Coast West Coast culture, and uh, just to have someone like wearing uh, you know it could be anything, but UC Santa Cruz is kind of more specific. They could have done um, what's the place uh, Sanford University. They could have done that like just as easily, just have like a shirt of that, but that's very well known it's kind of like how you know sanford west coast east coast you think harvard at least for a lot of people right away but like uc santa cruz is like very specific i feel like i want to caveat in for our guest aiden since you this is not you one of your favorite tarantino movies what is your favorite tarantino movie or what are your favorite tarantino movies and how would you compare them better to like me than um Pulp Fiction? Uh, probably my favorite is Inglorious Bastards. I just can't go wrong with Brad Kit, Brad, uh, Brad, Brad Pitt, Pitt killing <laughs> Nazis. I mean, it's just great. Inglorious Bastards. It's a good Tarantino film. They do uh, alter history, but like 
That's just Tarantino fucking with just people. Just to note, I have not fully watched Inglorious Bastards. I've seen the beginning, we, but I've still not fully seen it. So noted. Be. This is, <laughs> okay, we won't Tarantino spoil it. Switch a little bit. Inglorious Bastard time. There's there's two things you need to know about Inglorious Bastards. One, they misspell Inglorious in the title, and they do that on purpose. And two, it's not historically accurate at times. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't have to be. No, it's a Tarantino film. He can I'd like do. To think that's actually how it happened, though. <laughs> I mean, you know, war is war. A lot of things are classified. I don't know everything the government. Uh, I don't believe them entirely. So I there's that. Tarantino's trying to tell us the truth here. Maybe, <laughs> maybe he's going to expose the Illuminati in his next film. He's just hyping it up. He's showing all the all the figures before they became like part of the secret society <laughs> all tarantino films are historically true or autobi- autobiographical <laughs> earlier we were talking about like uh how quotable tarantino films are yes um and that's one of the things i love so much about um inglorious bastards is just how quotable all of brad pitt's lines are everything every you're hitting the nail on the head there because I, even in the trailer you know like i want my scalps Everything he says, you're right. is it's, uh, it's very quotable. It's um, and even some of the the lesser known uh, characters, like the, the the casting for that whole movie, is bizarre. They have Mike Myers just randomly in there. Yeah, it's so weird. And he's he does that, like he does that with his films, where like he'll just put like an actor who people know as a comedian or as someone from like uh like more like Comedy Central stuff. He'll just throw them in there for no other reasons, just to like just to like get people thinking, maybe. And it doesn't take people outside of the films, though. Instead of, like, ruining it for people, it's more like a, it chimes in. Because that's part of, like, Tarantino's, I don't know, spiels sometimes. But I remember in Glorious Bastards, in the very beginning, there's a, there's a scene I enjoy immensely. Oh, yeah, we have some people in the back if you're hearing footsteps. Um, just ignore that. Focus on the Tarantinoism. I think that's a word. Yeah, that's real. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so uh, in Glorious Bastards, there's a scene that I really enjoy where they introduce the character Hugo Stiglitz, has an unnecessarily awesome montage. They just like hype yeah, up this yeah. dude, and then halfway through the film, he's just gone. Like, yeah. it's not even important, but I love it so much because it's, it's it's stupid fun. It's stupid fun with that uh, character. <laughs> yeah, and that, that movie definitely uh, moves a lot faster than Pulp Fiction. Yes. It's it's a slow movie at times, but it's it's much faster, and I think that's just because like okay, you have this World War II setting, mm-hmm. and even the again the slowest scenes are scenes where like things are getting like very tense very quickly. Yeah. Um, is it Christoph Waltz? Yep. Just all of his scenes. He's great. He's wonderful. Phenomenal, phenomenal antagonist, and and, and in so many ways, just like uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He he's just like such the so much the opposite of uh brad pitt's character yeah like they're both iconic and charismatic in their own right but, but brad pitt's just completely idiotic <laughs> in a lovable way in so many like just how he how he talks to his men right how he's, yeah. he's he's, he's I'll, I'll take the lead because i know the first most italian you take the lead because you know the second you know the third i don't know italian exactly you know the third most italian it's just like the, dude the bits in that movie are just fucking great like, oh my god, I love, I love that movie. It's very nice for for me personally. If I had to choose like my favorite uh, Tarantino film, it's got to be Kill Bill Volume One. Yeah, it's been a long time since I've seen that. I remember watching that because it, it was uh, back when like cable TV was still like a, a thing at my house. I remember it was just on on different channels like very often. And so I just kept on seeing it and seeing it. And the more I saw it, like, I would just get, like, little bits and, and I would lose interest. But then the more I watched it, I was like, huh, this is really fucking cool. I have no idea how this movie is put together, like, what the hell's going on, because I'm just seeing, like, the middle of it. But the more and more I would watch it, and then, like, I finally watched, like, the whole thing, I just got hooked on the story. Because, one, it's got that non-chronological order. Uh, but it's it has like that '70s trope of like kung fu movies, and it takes all that like the best parts of it, puts it together in these interesting fight scenes, and they're not like crazy. Oh, hold on, and we're back. Sorry, we had a, a little bit of a break there again. Um, yeah, we do have someone trying to shut us down because we know the Tarantino truth. Yep, everything that Tarantino has made is historically accurate. Now they're trying to get rid of us. That's what you were saying. <laughs> Oh, uh, Kill Bill. Kill Bill Volume 1, you know, 
takes a lot of like the kung fu tropes you see in seventies movies, especially if, uh, homages to like Bruce Lee and stuff like that. Like that, even as a kid, I, I started to realize because like that was such an iconic figure, and then you had those kung fu movies coming about. So like I got that, I put it together, and for me it was just fun because you have those moments where Tarantino's going a lot faster. Instead of having these cringy moments where, like, ooh, that's, like, over the top and, like, I, I don't want to be in the same room as this. Instead of that, it's just, like, it's over the top gore mixed with um, those moments where, like, he just goes to the iconic mode where he's playing, like, some uh, homage music or some sort of, like, epic banter. And then when it does cut back to silence, it's because, like, someone got hurt or something got, like, really fucked up. And it's a lot like a fast pace, faster-paced Tarantino, which I do enjoy. It's not like a perfect movie, but like there's so much of it I can just get behind. The use of the Green Hornet soundtrack when they're just they're just driving to the club. It, it, it's more or less a nonsensical moment, other than the fact that it's bringing up, it's hyping up that tension of like what's going to be the final showdown. And the final showdown does not disappoint. Like it's action packed. He knew what he was going for. And part two is still good. You know, like action is one thing, but like part two goes back to Tarantino in his like uh, dialogue mode. And I could enjoy that, too, because then you realize, like, okay, what's with all this violence? Like, why is this happening in the first one? Then you see the second one. It's like, oh, shit. Oh, there, there, there's a lot of bad blood between these people. And um, I, what is it? I, I know my family has a soft spot for the character Bud in Kill Bill Volume 2. Just this ex-assassin, you know, like world-class assassin, lives in a trailer park <laughs> and just has a, a random uh, samurai sword with him. It's... It's there. That's cool. It's just very Tarantino. Only Tarantino is going to think of like putting a, a cowboy with a samurai sword in a trailer park. <laughs> yeah. Do you know anything about Kill Bill? It's Have you seen Kill Bill? Time. It's been so long since I've seen it. Same. It's been long since I've seen both of them. I know I've probably seen one and two, but at this you point, I'm out. Three or four? <laughs> five <laughs> and six? <laughs> three, four, five, six, seven. Kill Bill. But, um,. No, I'm. It's some it's like I low key feel like I might merge one and two together because it's been so long. But like, if there's anything about Kill Bill, I will. It was just more of like what captured me and like what's her name again, the actor? Uh, Uma Thurman. Yeah, Uma Thurman's character as like they should have a specific character name. Well, she's called at first in the first one. I believe she's called the Bride. She's not given a name until the sequel, and in the sequel she's called um, Beatrice. Like, that's when she gets her name, uh, or, like, she's given a name. I'll just call her Uma. So just, Uma. Yeah, just call her like, Uma. Just Uma <laughs> just, like, killing everybody was just so relentless just to, like, because I think she was trying to kill... Bill. Yeah, kill Bill. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Bill... Trying to kill Bill, but, like, going through all these other people to do it, which, now that I think about it, kind of adds to, like, you know, how Quentin does his stuff. Like, it's these... At least, like, with Kill Bill, there's more action, and, like, you can expect, like, the basic tropes of what you want to see in, like, an action film. And so, like, what I loved about it was just, like, all the fight scenes that were just so intense and, like, kind of, like, not as personal because, like, she wants to kill Bill, but, like, she made it personal because, like, as long as if I oh. can kill you, I'll make this personal just so I can get the Bill, like... Even it gets as a personal. Kid, even as a kid, like, I, I could feel that energy from that movie. I'm, like... Definitely. Like it, it made me just realize the concept of like how people will go, how far people will go for revenge. It, I mean, it, so much so it's it's just a revenge story all the way through. Some of his other works, like his his first works, aren't very revenge oriented. You know, Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, those aren't revenge stories outright. There's like a little a little bit of like people trying to get even, but that's not like the central point. Um, you could argue Inglorious Bastards is a little bit of like people trying a, a revenge story because there are revenge plots in there, but it's mainly just like, uh, actually, would it be? It's not an outright action film. What, what would you categorize Inglorious Bastards? Is it? It's a war film. It's a war film. Yeah. Historically accurate. Story. I'll say Inglorious Bastards, even though I haven't fully seen it, is definitely a dark comedy war film. Yeah, sorry, I'm sorry. I mean, that's fair. And then, um, I'm trying to think. It's Tarantino not... style. Tarantino <laughs> style. The Tarantino. Have you, uh, have you seen his most recent film? Or was it The Hateful Eight? I did see The Hateful Eight. Um, 
<laughs> my biggest issue with that was they like made a huge deal out of these cameras that they use. They use like the uh, the seventy millimeter cameras that have been like sitting around for like just sitting stored away for 40 50 years and the oh. thing about 70 millimeters it's huge and you can do these amazing landscapes okay but then he shot all of it inside of a cabin he didn't have a whole lot with the landscapes and no yeah it's it's weird so my take on the hateful eight it's is the situation where like two thirds of the movie is good like, the first half of the movie, right, you do have that scene where it's either you like the characters and you can get involved with what's happening, or you don't like the characters and it's very boring. Yeah, that's kind of how it felt. And, well, like, so much of it, it, like, you have to enjoy his use of dialogue, his use of characters, because um, then, like, if, if, you, if you're invested in, like, what's going to happen, like, because once people just start, like, dropping, like, flies, you're just like, oh, shit, like, who's going to be left? That's kind of cool, but at the same time, uh, his uh, his movie Hateful Eight and even in Django Unchained is a weird moment for Tarantino in my opinion because he starts filming in my home state of Wyoming and I find that very weird because no one knows about Wyoming as far as like Hollywood is concerned and then he comes along and like in, in Django Unchained he, he Kanye does now it's very strange but in Django he he very briefly just films the Teton Mountains which are in Wyoming for his winter uh, montage scene and it's just like why they're like those stuff would have been beautiful in seventy millimeter. I agree. I agree. Um. <laughs> and then for for hateful eight, like he does have like that very like long pan when um, the story first starts. Yeah, that's it. That's it. That's it. These are the same cameras that uh, I think Lawrence of Arabia was shot on. I oh, I need to see that. Just huge, beautiful landscapes all throughout the movie. It's it's, it's all right. Great. I highly recommend it. I I know it's like an iconic film. And I do want to watch it. Um, it. It's on my bucket list of things to do. But like for, for Tarantino, I did not know he was using those films for, or filming like that for The Hateful Eight. But like The Hateful Eight also is just like, I think it's something he felt almost necessary to do because like you have what, The Magnificent Seven, you got The the Sinister Six or something like that. Like he, you have all these numbers for different things and he just decided okay, you know what? I'm going to do the Hateful Eight. And it's it's not going to be any of like this teamwork stuff. It's just going to be eight people. I think it's more than eight, though. I feel like because one person doesn't count somewhere in there because one person isn't hateful. But eight people just fucking tearing each other apart, like emotionally and physically. And the only thing I'd say that he captures is a little bit of the situation of like how some people feel about Wyoming because there's like this old Confederate... Uh, uh, man who's just sitting there and he just goes on a rant saying how he hates everyone and hates everyone and doesn't care about anyone in Wyoming. I'm just like, huh, where do they find this man? Where have I heard this before? It's just, it's very on the nose. And again, it's, it's something so specific, like Tarantino must enjoy a, a very specific classic Western that mentions Wyoming in that sense, because a lot of people don't think of the West that way um, as just being kind of like more gritty, boring, or like just snowed in like that. Um, but it's, it's, it's fun a little bit. It's not his best movie in my opinion. Like it's not something I can rewatch like Kill Bill, Django Unchained, uh, Glorious Bastards, things like that. I can rewatch a lot. Pulp Fiction, um, not too much. Like when I first watched Pulp Fiction, I just saw like segments and I never finished it. And that was more just like, cause I just wasn't watching the film outright. It was just like something in the background, but I did get the idea like, Oh, there, like there's something cool going on here. Um, but when I did finally finish, it was like, yeah, all right, this is this is an interesting film. Um, it's slower than what I'm used to, but that's just because I've seen some of his modern work, like Tarantino's modern work. So seeing his old stuff is weird to me. Um, but it's still good. Like, certain parts of it are still good. And I'll be honest, like, I didn't really know the full concept of Tarantino before. Like, I know, I think I started becoming aware of him more even after I watched Pulp Fiction because I never just knew who he was in general. So once I started like piecing together, like, okay, so he has this particular style. I think I, it was, I was more aware when it came to like Django and like, cause that was, that was a fucking amazing, that's honest. I'll be honest. I mean, it is my favorite Tarantino film. Cause that's, like it, yeah. it, it is definitely like, you know, fabricated, like, you know, hero story of like a slave, like getting his girl and like everybody, well, saving his girl and then 
you know, going through all, like, the racial stereotypes, and, I mean, because some, I mean, re, like, I don't know if I already said this, like, in, like, some of my early cuts in this podcast, but, like, the ra- the, the racism of, like, why Tarantino just, like, does what so he does in his movies is just insane. I mean, even for Kill Bill, like, you got this <laughs> white girl just, like, killing a bunch of Asian people, like, if you think about it. With the katana, no less. Yeah, like, there's something to be said about that whole scene there. Uh, <laughs> one of the, one of the uh, interesting things about, like, Django Unchained is that unlike most of his other works, unlike most of Tarantino's other works, he has a specific thing he's going for where he deliberately... Um, is playing modern day music in what is otherwise a Western. Like he plays classic Western soundtracks or songs, but then there are those moments where he's playing, you know, um, Rick, uh, Ross. Rick Ross. He's playing, uh, who is it? Uh, uh, not DMX. Uh, does he play two? He plays Tupac, right? Uh, or, I don't think so. I don't know. I only remember Rick, Ro- Rick Ross playing. Who was Tupac Rick. Black? Was Rick Ross the uh, Get It On Till I Die uh, theme song that started playing like during one of the shoots? I remember it was like, like yeah, yeah, yep, that, yeah, and like it was just like that scene where like I think Jangles on like a horse or some shit like that, and like yeah. it wasn't even like an intense scene. It was just like kind of like yeah, I'm a badass motherfucker. I'm just like on a horse, like right. riding with my other companion, and like we was about to we just doing our shit because like. They got it. They got a mission. Well, they even I they even made I think uh, new songs for the for the uh, soundtrack like the song "Who Did That to You," that starts playing like right after the like Tarantino he makes his ca- or his cameo right is blown up, uh, and then you have a uh, uh, Django Unchained going back to get his girl right, and there's a song playing that go and the the chorus or name of it is "Who Did That to You," that song I think was made specifically for Django Unchained because I was looking into it like that's a cool song where does that come from. So that's very unique for like a Tarantino film. I know the the theme for Django Unchained is from an older like spaghetti western film called Django. I knew there was another film out there called Django because I remember seeing like some. It's weird. I've seen the trailer. It's about like a cowboy bringing the coffin of his wife across the desert. Okay. All right. Attacked by people hunting him or something. I, don't know. I know. I, I know at the very end, like, do you mind if I spoil it? Because I know there's like a spoiler in there with Don't the. Don't spoil it. Man. Okay. It's uh, been out since the <laughs> 70s. I, mean, I haven't gotten to it. Because, like, what happens is. Because <laughs> what happens is, like, the uh, the coffin, he, he finally opens it up, and, like, when the men, like, when, like, an army of, like, bandits are trying to kill him, he opens it up, and it's just a minigun in there, like a World War One. Oh shit! Yeah, yeah. So there's no body. In it. There's no body in there. It is it, like it's. It's. I think it's supposed to represent like his vengeance or something like that. But Damn. yeah, like it, it's. It's an interesting disguise because like it sounds like something Tarantino would be into. Very much so. I'm surprised he didn't like the straight up take from that. Like he, he obviously like that definitely um, is there and is definitely like something Tarantino would definitely enjoy. Yeah, but Some, something we haven't really like talked about is how. Hmm. Tarantino has actually like brought vengeance films to the West. Yeah, where like those were pretty popular in like Japan and Korea, but now we have Tarantino doing things like Kill Bill, and I mean that's very inspired by films like Old Boy or uh, what have you. Right, right. Where they're they're focused on like getting even, settling a score. Yeah, and it's interesting that his most of his work that involves that. He isn't directly involved in like, um, like underground or criminal activity. Like a little bit with Kill Bill, but most of it, like Django Unchained, is just a situation of like, like a western. And a western, it's less to do with criminals necessarily, and just more to do with just like you know cowboys fighting cowboys. There's a little bit of the outlaw thing going on there, but most people that like, or most of the film, the antagonists for um, uh, Django Unchained aren't like outlaws. Like they hunt out, like they're bounty hunters. They hunt outlaws, but the people that they're up against are just plantation owners. Yeah. And the there's an interesting scene because um, you got Leonardo DiCaprio up in there being like just this terrible, you know, terrible slave owner. Like wh- what do they call it? Uh, the Candyland. Yeah, and and it, it's all sorts of just terrible fucked up. Terrible slave owner that has so much elegance in how he does the character. It's like it's like you want to hate him, but you can't deny the fact that he played that character well. And oh. also, it's Leonardo DiCaprio, so it's just like, 
he's he's charismatic. Leonardo DiCaprio in that movie is phenomenal. Like just because he plays such an excellent villain, you know, he's like got that mustache twirling uh, villainy down. But what's interesting is when he smashes a glass down uh, for the scene where he's just like yeah. calling out. Yeah, it was that's an accident. It's an accident. It's real blood, and he just he went with it. And it's um, one of the few moments I think where Tarantino actually is like after they're done filming, he's like, "Dude, you got." to calm down and take care. Like, he's, he's losing a lot of blood. Yeah. Like, Tarantino isn't the one who said, you got to keep on acting. No, he's just like, get that man to the infirmary. My film will not kill DiCaprio. Yeah. <laughs> and it makes the whole scene even more fucked up. because He hasn't even won an Oscar yet. He didn't even win an Oscar. Yeah, at, that, like, at that point. <laughs> he was bleeding. Like, that film is the catalyst of what happened next for, for like, what got him an Oscar. Because, yeah. like, he's, he, he was, like, borderline torturing himself. What won him an Oscar? Oh, um... What's what's, it? it was a western. It was uh, what's it called? Um, oh, Revenant. Revenant. Yeah, the one where he gets yeah. mauled by a fucking bear. The and issue it's... I had with that was like uh, the Revenant just seemed like a longer version of that Quaalude scene from Wolf <laughs> of Wall Street. Like, it was pretty much the same shit. Like he's doing the same performance where he's crawling around the ground. Just uh... he's crawling, but like. It's, it's a different type of crawl. Instead of the quaalude, quaalude crawl where he's just like, you know, spasming and can't control himself, it's a situation where his back was mauled by a fucking bear. And yeah, it's, but it was pretty much the same performance. It's same, performance same performance. Same performance. Don't try to... <laughs> but he, he, like, he, he hid in a real dead horse. He swam in like freezing water and was eating like live fish like he he borderline was losing he may have been doing quaaludes when he was doing that whole spiel i, I wouldn't put it past him because he, he was into the method acting at that point he's just like i want an oscar and if you don't give it to me my next film is going to be a snuff film like he was ready to torture himself wow. <laughs> but like yeah uh that's the, the a-list actors you have in a tarantino film it, it blows my mind like the fact that he does what he does um or how Tarantino can get these people. And he has like a handful of actors, you know, he's really big on using. Yeah. And then he'll throw in like, what is it? Uh, Channing Tatum and the hateful eight. He'll just throw him in there as a cameo, even though he's more of a central character. It's more of a cameo because of how long he lasts. Um, Jonah Hill in, in Django Unchained, right? Just a random Klansman. Yeah, just... dude. That's a hilarious. Yeah. Uh, and there, there's a certain, I don't know where it comes from, but the, the quirkiness of where Tarantino will have those long segments where people are just trying to, having like a failure to communicate. He does that in Pulp Fiction. Uh, the, uh, he does that in Django Unchained. Yeah, he does a little bit of that in, um, in Glorious Bastards, I think, where just like people are stumbling over themselves and stuff like that, where it's very human, but it's also like, I wouldn't say it's Tarantino-esque, but, like, how he does it, you know that he loves those moments where it's just, like, Three Stooges act, but just pure dialogue. If I had to, if I had to sum it up like that. <laughs> uh, but I think we've... Is there anything we haven't covered for Tarantino? Like, we've covered a lot of ground. <laughs> uh... I mean, back to Pulp Fiction. Because <laughs> I was like... I mean, like, honestly, like... If you talk about Pulp Fiction or any Tarantino film, like especially for a director who's just this great, who has like a staple style, not staple style, but just a style that evolves and is just very like unique and innovative for like our culture. You have to talk about all the films, but to go back to Pulp Fiction, like yeah, it's just like I kind of want to get more on like the symbolism because Jules. I remember we were talking this about this yeah. earlier. Jules and his whole uh, development. Exactly. Jules, I mean, even, like, from what we came from, like, you know, talking about, like, the Jesus drug dealer. Heroin Jesus. <laughs> Heroin <laughs> it's Jesus. Just, like, there's so much, like, I think, and that's, like, where, like, when it, for me, what's fun about talking about Tarantino films is, like, the symbolisms and, like, the things that you have to go back and, like, watch it over and over again to, like, see, like, of course, like, it's probably more prominent in, like, a film like Tarantino. I mean, <laughs> In a film like Pulp Fiction. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Especially with the fact of, like, you know, the f- fact that, like, you got Jules, like, Samuel Jackson, like, quoting a scripture before he fucking murders a person. Like, if that's, like, if that's not, like, I mean, I don't even know what fucking Tarantino's, like, religion is, but, like, the fact that, like, he was able to, like, use that in such, like, w- in, a, in a very archaic way. Am I using that word right? Archaic? Well, it's it starts, I wouldn't say archaic, maybe, pr- uh, like, primal. What does archaic mean? 
Archaic is like, um, if I'm correctly, it's kind of uh, old, not old fashioned, but like kind of like dark ages. You know, uh, I think it's more related to like kind of medieval. I would call it more primal though, because he's he's using it. He's using the, this passage right to just basically instill fear and domination into his victims. Yeah, and and so I I feel like it's more primal. Um, I mean. Not, maybe it would be a little bit more archaic because you. I mean, you have like I mean, that. I mean, I'm pretty sure in medieval times, like because you also had like people like with, with trials and stuff like that. That's true. Somebody, like, yeah. Do scripture verses in a sense of like still kind of like having like a good. I quote two fingers good vibe of like you're about to murder somebody, so let's like. You know, pray to Jesus. Let's like read a scripture so like we can cleanse ourselves. Of yeah, the the irony of it all. Yeah, and, the irony of like and that. I mean, they even do the same thing for people. Like I don't know if they do anymore, but like in prison systems, if you're on death row, like they do script like some type of like scripture verse or like the Lord's prayer and shit like that. So like, yeah, in a sense, it is kind of archaic to a degree because like because it's just more modern because like we. And I feel like why it feels even weird because like in this time period where we feel like we're supposed to be more like you know civilized like we still you know uphold these practices just like in more you know modern ways but even but you can still say it's like just as horrible if not worse because like now you can just inject people with chemicals and like kill them like that and like well like it's it's a situation like you know, like you said like the the hypocrisy the irony. Of using like you know scripture that's about all about like turn the other cheek forgiveness and he's using it as other people have used it throughout history uh, just to kind of just demand uh, or justify bigotry or genocide or something like that. In this case, it's a, it's a gangster using um, uh, symbolism or religious symbolism in order just to dominate his victims in, in order to control the the circumstance. But as you said, like there's there's that development where like he, because he has this religious background. After Jules and uh, Vincent, after like they're supposedly supposed to die, because like they just got shot at six times and the bullets just like basically went around him, and they just decided, or Jules decides, like, okay, this was a miracle. And the rest of the film for them, after like the whole Marv incident in the car, it, they're just debating like, uh, you know, spiritual and materialistic needs and like what's more important. Because Jules says, like, okay, I shouldn't be uh, a gangster anymore. Like the fact that I didn't die in a circumstance where I should have died, maybe there's maybe there's a higher power that demands more from me. And he, he says he's just going to give up, like you know, his his form of income as being uh, a gangster. He's just going to, or as being a hitman, he's just going to like walk the earth and just kind of have this spiritual awakening. And then Vincent, in his mindset sees him as like a bum for doing that. Right. So so Vincent is is a very materialistic. Uh, character where he's just like, oh, you're gonna quit your job, you're gonna quit making money, you're gonna, you're basically just gonna be a bum. And Jules is saying like, no, 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 I don't feel the need for that anymore. And so, and there's that that clash of character at the very end between the two, which kind of represents, I think, the the overall statement of the film, which is the people who are adapting, because the people who change, the ones who have the development to change in the film, live. Vincent doesn't live. Because he he stays the same, like he denies the miracle. But it's more about the idea, just like he he keeps in playing the game. Um, the character like Butch and Marcellus Wallace, right? Those two, they also change because they're, they're supposed to be two stubborn people, a stubborn boxer and a stubborn mobster. And you think they would never agree upon on anything or like part ways, but they do that. And it's to the situation because they're everyone is uh, deconstructed in the film. The gangsters are deconstructed to their basic needs, or the, the hitmen are de- uh, deconstructed to their basic needs. One feels the need to be more materialistic. The other one decides to be more spiritualistic. Uh, Marcellus Wallace and Butch, they decide that, oh, uh, or they, they come to the realization that they're uh, in the same circumstance or equally in the same circumstance because the people in the basement... <laughs> Call it, putting it mildly, pick who they're going to, uh, who go, who they're going to rape by just chance. And the fact that they're picked by chance allows Butch to have that m- mindset that oh, I could just as easily have been in that terrible, vicious circumstance. So Butch decides to go and save the person who tried to kill him, because it was the idea like they are they're equals in that circumstance. It could just easily have been him. So he decides if it could have just been easily been me, I want, would want him to come back and save me because that's a fucked up situation. 
Yeah, like more <laughs> fucked up than like the situation they were at. at, at. I mean, like, because Butch was literally gonna kill Marcellus, like in the store. Then like, yeah, that dude, like the owner or whoever that motherfucker was, like hillbilly, like raper dude. Like it's it's so fucked up. But it's, it's, like that was like I was okay. Like aside like aside from that symbolism, like of like you know people de- deconstructing. It's just like that. I will say that is the most disturbing scene because it was so random, but so effective that like they literally were so immersed in their very tense situation ordeal to the point where like someone's literally gonna get killed, and then right. this random situation happened where like I mean of course like they end up going into a store and like just like I mean of course like they kind of trespassed. But the fact that, like, that dude's main thought was just like, hmm, two motherfuckers are going to kill each other. Let me stop this. Put a shotgun in their face. Knock the other one out because you got the nigger on the floor. With, and also, they were highly racist. Oh, yeah. There's just so much racism. But, like, I mean, but that's kind of besides the point of this. It's just like, you can, you can just tell, like, you're just, like, Tarantino's films, like, he is not afraid to show, like, how horrible human beings can be. And, and that's such a and that was such a random scene that was just like kind of from the folly of the fact that like they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time doing <laughs> a wrong thing in general because like well it, it's just like it's just so many conflicts but like for Butch and Marcellus to like be in such a random situation where they're gonna get raped because like they they are feuding and that feud made them realize that shit, there's just certain people that just want to fucking do horrible shit just for the sake of it. And as dark and as morbid as it is, that is the, um, like, like that's, that's the, uh, the consequence of just, like, them being in the wrong place, wrong time. Like, it, it's really fucked up. But the circumstance that the, you know, the, these, these hillbilly pawn shop owners who are rapists, the fact that they choose just, like, randomly, did, like, it, that's, that whole scene of just, like, the eeny, meeny, miny, mo thing, that is the deconstruction of the two characters of uh, uh, Marcellus and Butch into just into basically forms them into equals because either one of them could have been in that vicious circumstance, and so then it, that's how like they, the two find at the very least some sort of understanding because otherwise the two characters are stubborn as hell, right? Yeah. And, and and so the fact that it has that type of development there, and most of it's visual, like visual development with the characters fucked up but visual nonetheless is impressive storytelling having said that it takes a long time to get to that point and it's a situation where like i don't want to be here i want out of this basement i don't want to see the gimp what the hell is a gimp that's a gimp no get me the fuck out of here but it's a it's an effective scene i always want to know what that gimp was going to do we don't want to know what the gimp does. He's a man who lives in a basement against his will and is covered in leather. <laughs> Zip, that's zipped. Yeah, it's it's a it's a very SMN thing and it's scary as all hell. You you know what? I'm not surprised a pawn shop has that, but at the same time, it's just it's it's so much weirdness at once. And I I, I don't even want to know what Tarantino does in his spare time to uh to like construct that, that scene. <laughs> The fact that he was able to think about that type of shit, like, it makes me wonder what type of shit he's thinking. Oh, he's definitely fucked up. There's there's two things I know about Tarantino that are just an absolute in all his films. One, he's going to have, like, some sort of gratuitous gratuitous uh, imagery that, like, everyone wants to turn away from. And two, he's going to show something feet-related. I was about to say that. (laughs) He loves feet. There's a foot fetish in all his films. Oh, yeah. Even... Um, even the films that he doesn't direct but just stars in, like, what is it, uh, uh, Until Dead Before Dawn or Until Dawn? He, he's just, like, it's him and George Clooney. They're, like, outlaws running to Mexico. Uh, Tarantino's in that film, and his character is shown to have a foot fetish randomly in the film. Has nothing to do with the film. The rest of the film, like, Tarantino's a minor character. Not even directed by him. He's just in there. But still... Still, there's a foot fetish. It's it's almost as if he's like you sign up for like involving yourself in something foot related in all his films. But hey, if he, he's got an Oscar, so clearly something is working for him. Maybe he loves feet too. <laughs> uh, we're not here to judge people. All filmmakers <laughs> love feet. <laughs> it worked for Die Hard, but I mean that was a very weird foot fetish. <laughs> uh, I think I think we're at the end of the rope. Unless there's something we've missed. <laughs> um, I mean, we can 
go on and on. If there's any last things I can say about Pulp Fiction. Um, What's your thoughts on the foot fetish? <laughs> Everyone's got to talk about the feet. <laughs> Everyone. Um, it's important. <laughs> yeah, I'll be honest. Like, I don't. I'm a weird dude too. Like I'm probably <laughs> as fucked up as Tarantino. Like we're in a like you know, this is not a video, but like if you, if you were in this room, I just have a bunch of like dark Christian satanic shit with like gratuitous <laughs> like pornography, like pen and ink drawings. So I can't say shit, but like all this you I can find on your Instagram, things. right? Yeah, <laughs> on on Nord's Playhouse on Instagram. It's all there. Like I don't, yeah, I just don't understand feet. Like I can, I can like draw like people like girls pissing on each other, but like I don't understand feet. They're cool to draw. I'll be honest. Like anytime I do draw like erotic stuff, like drawing feet are fine. But I'm a dude who usually likes socks. Socks are nice, man. All right. Well, I think. <laughs> I mean, some people are more sandals. Socks. <laughs> Some people go barefoot. The next episode sucks. It's Fuck. what's on your feet. <laughs> just gonna find everything sock related, not foot related, just sock related. That'd sock be a challenge. <laughs> Socko. I feel like Socko's a name. Isn't that a name? Sock that. <laughs> you ever seen the, the the store in the Mall of America called Socks Appeal? I have. I have not. It's a real place. <laughs> I've never shopped there, but I really appreciate the pun. I'm 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 not sure what to make of that. I mean, I guess to each their own. I mean, the, the, the fact there's a store for everything nowadays, and I'm I'm not surprised there's a store just for socks. <coughs> All right, I think I think we've reached the end of the rope for everything Tarantino related uh, and pulpy and the Pulp Fiction. Uh, this has been the decaf recap. Recap movies, we just go over them after their hype, and Pulp Fiction is something I'd say is still a little bit hyped, but uh, in a nostalgic way. I'm your host, Lucas Velastos. I'm Trey Bell, also just yeah, just Trey. CK Pitts on SoundCloud and Norwitz Playhouse on Instagram. I'm Aiden. I'm also Pines BB on SoundCloud. I have no songs right now and no followers, but you can be the first if you want to follow me, and I'll have a song soon for you. All right. (laughs) How do I end this? I got you. I got you covered. Shout out to the guys here, and by all means, you know, follow, check out their stuff, ask us questions on social media. This has been the Decaf Recap. Hope everyone enjoyed the Tarantino talk. We'll catch you guys next week. We do these every Monday, and you will hear from some of us, all of us, at least me, uh, in the following days or the following weeks. All right. Peace.